You're listening to the Fresh Air Sports Hub. Here comes Usain Bolt! Usain Bolt storming through! He takes it again! Down goes Frazier! Yeah, down goes Frazier! He hits one! Oh, what a goal! It's Lillard! He got the shot off! on freshair.org.uk Hello, welcome to the Sports Hub Show. It's me, Peter Johnson, joined as usual by Alfie Steiner. This week we're talking all things Premier League and Champions League. We've got a couple of other little features for you uh, to do with Mike Tyson's fight at the weekend. We'll talk about Roman Grosjean's horrifying crash in the Bahrain Grand Prix on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I think first things first, we need a, a quick word as the thing we seem to talk about the most on here, obviously, is football. And we heard about the tragic passing of Diego Maradona this week age 60, so our thoughts go out to his family. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to add on to that, Alfie. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you can sort of judge judge a player, not that you, I mean, anyone needs to judge Maradona, but you could tell, like, the footballing, when things like this happen, the footballing world sort of come together collectively, and you can really sense the, the yeah, the sense of loss and, and respect that's being paid to Maradona, and as we all know, he was quite a controversial figure but I think when everyone comes together and and sort of speaks of him in such high regard and how inspirational he was on the pitch for you know generations at the moment as well I think you know testament to his the way he 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 affected everyone um you know so many people were were moved and inspired by Maradona as they were growing up and yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a massive shame, obviously, because I think his off-field antics perhaps caught up with him. But you know, the whole story at the moment is you have the Diego and then you have the Maradona, and you don't get you don't get what the magic on the pitch without the controversial figure off it. So, um, I definitely recommend to anyone who's listening uh, if they haven't watched it already. There's a I think it came out last year. It's just called Diego Maradona. It's sort of a two-hour documentary, and I've started watching it, and it's excellent for an insight into the into the person that is Maradona as well. But yeah, of course, uh, our thoughts go towards his family, and and we pay our respects to him. Absolutely. I mean, it's not very often at all. In fact, I certainly can't remember where the you know the, the passing of one player has resulted in you know minute silence and marks of respect all across the world. Like you might see a club legend, and they'll have a minute silence. But I don't think I've ever seen it before that the whole football world comes to a standstill for, for one player, such as kind of his influence. Um, obviously, we saw all that in the Premier League as well this weekend, and they kind of paid tribute to him in a, a fitting manner, really. I mean, um, with, you know, some absolutely fantastic matches uh, that we'll talk about. Um, I enjoyed this weekend's round of Premier League fixtures slightly more than you, I imagine. Uh, we'll get on to talking about that. We'll start at uh, St. Mary's. Uh, where my little love affair with Southampton <laughs> ended at half-time. I was kind of ready to to end my little obsession with them. But United turned it around, Edison Cavani with uh, two goals and an assist. Um, and I think this game kind of it encapsulated both sides' respective seasons, isn't it, really? I mean, Southampton, there's a statistic, they're the second best in terms of um, first-half goals conceded and the second worst in terms of second-half goals conceded. Mm. Um, and then again, similarly, you look at United, they only played to anything like the true potential where they were really badly under the cost. You need to pull something out of the bag. So I thought it was a, a very strange game. But at the same time, it just seemed to just perfectly fit the narrative of both team seasons. Absolutely. And I think I didn't actually, I didn't catch the first half, but started, started you know, from the second half. And wait, you, United went in at half-time, 2-0 down, didn't 2-0 they? 2-0 at half-time, yeah. Um, 
And again, I was watching it. I'm always surrounded by Manchester United fans at the moment, but I was watching it. And I think as soon as Fernandez's goal went in, or even before, it was very easy in my mind to think, right, United are just going to win this 3-2. I could see it. And to be fair, I didn't anticipate that maybe Cavani would come on and have the impact that he did. But again, I'm not even as, as a neutral, obviously, that's great to see. But even as an Arsenal fan or, you know, a, a fan of rivals, to see Cavani do that off the bench and, and turn the game in the way that he did, I think was was excellent to see. Um, and yeah, it was it was quite the comeback. So so credit where credit's due to United and Solskjaer and, and you know, Cavani and... and yeah, it's a good day for you in the end. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen very often with me where I watch United with an, with an awful lot of confidence or positivity. And, you know, that was certainly the case 45 minutes in. But it was one of them where you felt, the, like you say, the first goal went in and it just, it, it just a case of the momentum where the game was going. And mm. I think United, I think 2 0 was, if we're being honest, was perhaps a slightly flattering scoreline anyway. Um, so, yeah, you have. I, agree, I I do agree. I think it's one of the rare occasions where you see a team claw one back, and you just you just kind of you've got that feeling, um, which I did think spoke think spoke volumes about United yesterday. To be fair, I mean it does make one thing I noticed, and I'm sure you'll have something to comment as well. Is it makes such a difference having an actual centre forward rather than the likes of Cavani or uh, sorry the likes of Rashford or Greenwood or somebody playing in there. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. no, Arsenal, you've been experimenting with all kinds of players up front over the last few years. Um, but it's just just a serial goal poacher makes such a difference to a side, doesn't it? Well, you could tell straight away that, you know, as much as Bruno Fernandes got the ball rolling with his goal, you know, it was Cavani sort of peeling off on the right-hand side effortlessly, just knew where the space was. Put a, maybe, you know, Southampton could have dealt with the ball better, but put it into a good area. And it's two headers, just his movement to, again, like he, perhaps the marking should be better from the Southampton defenders. But, you know, as a striker, your sort of, your job is to get into those positions and you're banking on the fact that your movement's better than the defenders. And on both counts, Cavani lost, lost his marker and you could just tell that, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing and he, it was a proper sort of marker of, a, of an excellent striker. And yeah, I, I think, you know, good good on him to to be able to make his mark like that. And I think you could tell as well the, the sort of celebrations and especially at the end, I know, you know, the elation of, of making a, you know, being 2-0 down at halftime and come back 3-2 of itself is really impressive. But, you know, you could tell how much it meant to the Man United players celebrating sort of, you know, I'm sure they're not, they're not immune to the doubts about them as a team, but also Cavani as a player. And I'm, I'm sure, I think they've all seen it in training. You know, the, the, the feedback has been really positive, resoundingly so. But when he delivers it for everyone to see, I think that's that's got a it's going to stand out and put to bed hopefully a few of the stories and, and the doubts that we've talked about on this before. You know, of Cavani as a signing and all of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there we go. I mean, Three I heard Maguire. Uh, he said, I mean, he kind of has to really is kind of his club captain. He did say that uh, Cavani's by far the best player he's ever played against in training in terms of movement. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what other strikers Maguire's come up against in training. I suppose maybe Kane for England, but other than that, I'm not sure there's much competition. But it's still a, still a nice thing to say. Um, one thing I thought as well watching the game, and we, we'll move on to Southampton, but uh, one thing I thought watching it from a Man United perspective was we're 2-0 down at half-time. Van der Beek just got his first start in the Premier League and I could just see him getting hauled off after 45 minutes and just a bit more shots of him sitting on the bench looking really like gloomy and miserable, like he just wished he was anywhere else in the world. Um, 
so from from my point of view, and I'm sure there were a lot of Manchester United fans who felt a similar way. It was uh, it was good to see him get the time and the opportunity because I think that could have been you know almost game over for him really as a as a future prospect for United if he gets dragged off after 45 minutes there. Um, mm. So from my point of view, that was a great thing to see. Now if we turn to um, you got some twaddle, Matt. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say, you know, again, as much as Solskjaer can be, can be deemed, you know, unworthy or, or not the guy to, to take Man United forward in the long term, you know, uh, the focus has got to be on the decisions he makes. And he made the decision to bring Cavani on. You know, people were maybe clamouring for him to start, especially in Martial's absence. And, you know, Rashford was perhaps a doubt, but he played anyway. Um, to leave Van der Beek on, and I think he had a great second half. To bring on Cavani, you know the, the signings. You know Tellez started, and I think had a, had a quite a promising game. Yeah, Van Bolt as well, Cavani. Um, so you know these signings who sort of you know over the last month or two have been criticised and and sort of questioned as to why they were made, and waste of money, and why are we signing this type of player, whether we don't need them. But you know it is it's still early days in their careers, and it you know this was maybe the first time that they all were on the pitch and for that second half and contributed directly to a win. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to add on that, you know, credit, credit to Solskjaer for sort of sticking to his guns and, and in the end, ultimately, his, his selection and decisions in-game paid off. So, yeah. uh, Well, we'll turn, turn to Southampton now. I was just looking through the Premier League table earlier and only Liverpool and Everton matches have seen more goals in Southampton games. Like, they've really been in amongst the goals this season. But mm. of the 35 goals in their matches, they've been split pretty, split pretty much evenly, I think. I think 19-4 and 16 against. I mean, they're still only four points off the top of the table, but they, look, they do look at a vulnerable side at times. Um, I mean, since Hassan Hussle took over, I think it was December 2018, I believe, they've dropped 40 points from winning positions, which is the most of any, or considerably the most of any side in that mm. time. Um, so I do think it is slightly, well, definitely worrying from their point of view that you know they seem to be so flaky, for want of a better word, when they've got um, when they've got a good lead. Yeah, I do think you can sort of you can attribute to the the sort of type of system that's employed. You know, they they they're renowned for. It's also, I don't want to compare it to Liverpool, but I, I look at Hassan Hüttel and I think about you know the high pressing sort of German type of team that that presses high up the pitch and plays quite a high defensive line and you could tell you know the thing was first half United you said the the scoreline flatters Southampton somewhat but you know United definitely should have scored at least once in that first half and then you know it was the same in the second half but they put the chances away Southampton's high line and you know being pretty bold in possession, playing out from the back. You know, McCarthy had a bit of a howler at one point, centre-backs giving the ball away. So I do think it's a testament to their style, that sort of high risk, high reward. They're going to get goals and, and press teams off the pitch. But at the same time, you're, you're inviting teams like United to be able to get in behind and score three goals and a half. You know, they conceded three against Chelsea as well. So, you know, I think they're going to be a team, like, you, like we've said before, who are going to be pretty pretty good to watch this year they're never gonna perhaps make make that step up to become like a Wolves or a Leicester because they're just I don't know maybe their style of play and the players they've got don't quite allow for um the defensive security which which would tally up with their you know 
what looks like a pretty good attacking team and an attacking sort of style as well, especially with James Ward-Prowse on set pieces. Yeah, I mean, shout out for James Ward-Prowse as well, obviously. That's, is it four goals in his last three Premier League games now or something? Which is, I hope, you, I hope you've got him in your fantasy team. I mean, he's just on the form of his life at the moment. Um, but I think we have made this comparison before and it's, it is perhaps a slightly damning comparison for Southampton, I'm not sure. But they do, for me, they just seem to resemble last year's Sheffield United so, so much. It's... Uh, Beyond the fact they wear red and white, it's, um, you know, I just think in terms of the, they're incredibly entertaining to watch, perhaps don't have the players to where they are in the league. Um, mm. But they just seem to, however many they score, they seem to concede equally as many. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think, well, the way that I see it, when I think of Southampton, I mean, to be honest, Sheffield United last year, I mean, you know, they were sort of fun to watch in the sense that they were this team from the championship who were sort of doing something new, but, you know, they didn't score a ton of goals and, you know, had had one of the better defensive records in the league. To be fair, you know, Southampton's record sort of over, you know, I think since that 9-0 loss against Leicester, you know, they've been bang up there in terms of... Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, if you do that sort of... And I quite like this metric or, or way of measuring, you know, across seasons to sort of measure the form especially you know over the last year given COVID and all of that sort of stuff so Southampton are definitely up there in terms of you know how well they've been playing but yeah as you say I think they're they're suspect to they're they're prone to to conceding and leaking quite a few goals but you know I don't think that's going to change I think they have enough you know we're forgetting they don't have Danny Ings at the moment who's you know far and away their sort of most important player I mean to be fair (laughs) James Ward-Prowse is doing making quite a big claim bold claim to sort of be recognised as as a pretty sort of well, one of the stronger stronger players in the league at the moment. But um, yeah, I think Southampton, uh, as, as we've said, going to have plenty of entertaining games this season, concede a lot of goals, but probably score quite a few as well because that's just how they play. Well, we'll move on now. We've got quite a, there's, a, there's a few games, I think, worthy of talking about in the Premier League this weekend. Um, so we'll move on to uh, kind of a regular feature now where you've got to sit here and tell us about Arsenal's latest defeat, unfortunately. I mean, it's all all right, though, because Roy Key did say yesterday he's confident you've got enough to stay in the division. So, take the positive from it. Uh, but it was, uh, it's now since, I think, a few weeks ago where you took three points from Man United. And we're talking about this could be a turning point in the league. Obviously, won the FA Cup a few months before. Then you either get, then get this, what appeared to be potentially a big breakout result against United. But you've taken one point from, I think, three games since then. Uh, it's the worst league start for 39 years. It was... Yesterday was, I think it was the year anniversary of Emery being sacked, wasn't it? And you were six places lower in the league than you were this time in 2019. Um, third fewest chances created in the league above just Burnley and surprising Leicester are down there as well. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll stop banging on about these damning statistics at this point and just let, let you have a bit of a say about what you, what, what you saw yesterday. Oh, uh, look, I think... Um... It's a really tough one to 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 talk about, and I've been I've been thinking about it so on repeat for the last you know twenty four hours or, or so. And you know the unfortunate thing is, as Arsenal as a you know an Arsenal fan and, and speaking to other Arsenal fans, you know the the optimism over this new sort of breath of fresh air that, that Arteta's brought with him, and the discipline and the and the change of culture and and you know, the tangible improvements we were seeing sort of defensively and structurally, but, you know, that sort of credit and f- good feeling is quite quickly 
dissipating into into you know a bit of bit of worry about where where this team is going and whether Arteta's the right guy and and I found I found it quite I found it quite disheartening and upsetting actually yesterday to to sort of even consider the idea of Arteta being put under pressure I know it's the reality of you know we've lost three home games in a row now to to Villa I mean Leicester Villa and Wolves we've drawn by the skin of our teeth to Leeds um and so you know it's 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 uh it's it's logical and understandable that the the pressure starts to mount on Arteta especially when there's nothing really that we're seeing at the moment that suggests that we're you know there, there's something to grab onto and, and be positive about moving forwards because before it was all about you know solidity and, and tactical awareness and you know something that we hadn't seen in a, for, in a in an Arsenal team for so long but even that now seems to well, at least over the last month or so, completely disappeared into looking like a, a team devoid of confidence, both defensively and going forward. You know, it's, as you, you quite rightly pointed out, those attacking stats, which are a very, make for a very unpleasant reading. And as much as, it, you know, everyone knows that Arsenal are a pretty terrible attacking team, and that's not something new. And I think it's just more obvious at the moment because the likes of Aubameyang aren't, you know, getting on outperforming and sort of carrying the team in the way that perhaps they were before because, you know, the way that we're playing does not allow for that. So it's all just becoming a bit clearer, I think, where this team is at. And it's quite painful to realise that, you know, this is this is a project which I think we're going to have to get behind. I mean, as an Arsenal fan, I'm not, you know, I, I don't perhaps speak for the majority at this point because a lot of people are going to, and rightly so, are demanding improvement sort of instantly. And there is an argument to be made that Arteta needs to be getting more out of what he's got at his disposal, especially given the likes of Aubameyang up top not getting a sniff. By the same token, I think, you know, I am willing to sit through this and give Arteta time because I, I just think this short, short-termism and, you know, I, I trust that he, he's, a, he's a young coach and this is what we signed up for. He's, he's going to have to learn on the job. That's, that's why... That's what we get when you sign when you when you give a contract to a coach who's in his first job. And so look, it it does have to be better. And it's really difficult to sort of talk about Arsenal in a bigger picture when we lose in such a disheartening manner. But there was not much at all to be to be uh yeah, to be positive about yesterday. The same in the Leeds game, really. I guess the fact that we got sent off got a man sent off was the only reason why we could be slightly positive about the game but there's it's all the positive signs that Arteta's you know done so well to establish have really started to sort of morph into into things that you know stick to beat him with and it's it's worrying times because I don't I really don't want sort of the you know the classic Arsenal sort of you know we talk about United and how fragile it is and, and how results can build and then all these sort of past difficulties start being built up but I really really don't want that to happen because Arsenal as a club is still so fragile and Arteta's done such a good job sort of steadying the ship but it, it seems as if all of those fragilities are, and vulnerabilities are coming up again so yeah as you know as you can tell I've got plenty to talk about um, yeah I mean I can't help but well I just think it's quite interesting when you look at we've got obviously Arteta in at Arsenal we've got club legend Frank Lampard in at Chelsea club legend Solskjaer in at United and they're all Obviously, very in it. Well, Solskjaer, if we're being honest, is not that inexperienced, really. I mean, he's inexperienced in a, a job the size of where he's at. Um, but I just think it's. A, sorry, I'm not sure what happened there. 
it's a common theme between the three of them that the results kind of ebb and flow. I mean, Lampard's unbeaten in eight games with Chelsea now and he got to the FA Cup final last year and he qualified for Champions League and it all looked brilliant. But if you look at every game kind of in isolation week in, week out, even he, you know, loses, loses a few in a row then gets on a good run. And I think it is as, as difficult as it is to see clubs like Arsenal and Man United so far down the league. I think it is quite refreshing because because the clubs are kind of emotionally invested in these managers as club legends. It is nice to see them get the time that an Emery or a David Moyes or a Maurizio Sarri wouldn't otherwise get. Well, that that's the you know I was thinking about this today. That's a sort of risky run. Like you know, if Arteta. I mean, it's all about the context. But you think like you know, if if Arteta wasn't someone so affiliated with the club and and someone that we've got behind so much, then you know we're feeling quite differently about it today. Or at least the people who are willing to stand behind him and give him time. You know, it is like Lampard, like Solskjaer. You know, Lampard. What this is his second full season as Chelsea manager. First last year. You know. I remember a lot of rumblings early on about whether he, he should be in the job. And, yeah. uh, and so I think as much as I'm disheartened to hear, you know, slowly the question starting to come up, you know, Arteta was asked about it in his press conference yesterday, a post-match press conference about, you know, whether he worries for his job. And I just, to hear that as someone who's so invested in, in giving Arteta time and, and, you know, sort of, perhaps from a more emotional point of view and, and not, you know, obviously we need to see tangible sort of things on the pitch in the short term. And I do think, you know, there's something to say for that. And if it, if it gets a lot worse, then, you know, that's another conversation to be had. But when, when the, when the sort of pitchforks start coming out, then you, you really do realise how, how much pressure is on these managers, rightly so, because that's what they've signed up for. But as you say, you know, the, they're inexperienced managers really. And I know Solskjaer's had experience before, but, you know, they're learning on the job and they're at these clubs who have fan bases and, and the general standing around the world to be big clubs and, and win consistently. But you think of, or at least from an Arsenal point of view, you know, it's, it's a sort of shot of reality that, you know, our squad on a bad day is, is incredibly bang average. And the metrics have been suggesting that we've been a bang average side going forward for the last couple of years now. So... You know, to see us languishing in mid-table is obviously very painful, but it's, the stats suggest that that's where we deserve to be. And, and I know it's got to get better, but I think laying it at the door of Arteta, ultimately he's responsible for the team, but I don't want to put that sort of pressure and that, you know, I don't want him to have to, he's already had to do so much in the space of a year to, to try and improve the atmosphere around Arsenal. But at the same time, he's dealing with the fallout of an absolute mess, you know, at the end of Wenger's time and then Emery and, you know, executive level. I won't get into it because that's for, that's, for, that's for people who actually care about what's going on at Arsenal's executive level. But, you know, he is, he's done such an incredible job. And I think it's a real shame that, you know, as much as things do need to get better, he, he, he deserves that time. But as, as you've said, you know, it's a brutal sort of environment to be in and it can all go so toxic so quickly, especially at clubs like Arsenal and United when there's been long-standing issues. So, yeah. I mean, we've uh, we spent quite a long time talking about that. That's not even what I'd actually identified as kind of an important <laughs> point from the game, um, which will just come out. And I think we'll just touch on this briefly now because sure. I'm just conscious about time. Um, sure. But I don't think we can refer to this game without talking about um, head injuries. Uh, we saw yesterday Raul Jimenez down there with one of the worst injuries you can sustain, not necessarily just in football, but in general, obviously a 
fractures mm. goal. God knows how long he'll be out for. Uh, but by the same token, in that same incident, we saw David Luiz, who perhaps, maybe not more shockingly, but just as shockingly, had blood you know, pouring from his head and was mm. not obliged to go off the pitch and he carried on playing. Um, mm. I mean, the FA needs to have a think about that. I mean, that's all the talk about mental health and protecting people and wanting to ban, go ex- as extreme as banning headers, just such as kind of the concern about people's heads in football. But you'll mm. have to carry on when they've got such a huge gash that you can literally see the blood coming out. It's Something's not right there. Yeah, it, I think yesterday definitely brought to light and brought quite rightly to our attention the the dangers of you know of football and you know that that I think it happened after four or five minutes but I don't know if you watched the game but you know the the sound of David Luiz and and Jimenez sort of clashing heads was was a sickening sort of sound and obviously Jimenez came off far worse and and the sound sounds as if he he's recovering steadily but you know who knows what sort of long term what long-term consequences that could have for him and his playing career. You know, you think of Ryan Mason from uh, from Spurs and then yeah. Hull, you know, his career was ended by a, by a career from a, an injury like that, you know, fractured skull. But like you say, you know, there are protocols in place to to judge whether the players can continue. But when you see David Luiz, you know, with blood pouring out of his head and even if he's passed those 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 sort of rapid fire questions of I think it's something like what stadium you're in or something like that then you know I just don't think you can and the fact he went off on off at half time is telling in itself that it needs to change and like you say I think it's 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 quite you know that things need to change and again people have been talking about that big time this weekend Okay, so just to move on now, uh, just think one more game really to talk about the Premier League this weekend. Of any real consequence, uh, it was Chelsea against Spurs. Must have been quite pleasant for you. you know, you've got to take the positives playing Spurs next weekend to actually see them drop points at once. It was the first time in five matches away from home this season that they've not come away with all three points. Mourinho mm. said he's happy that Spurs are unhappy with a point, which kind of make, makes sense really, kind of his ambition of aiming right for the top of the league. But then he went on to say that he, he's, he's, he insists that they're not title challengers. I mean, that's just classic, just nonsensical mind games, isn't it, surely? So classic. I mean, he's gone back. I think he's made this analogy before about, about Chelsea when he was there, but he's gone back to the pony analogy. Yeah. That was a two-horse race. And then I think, I can't remember exactly what he said, but, you know, referring to Tottenham as a pony and not in the race or something like that. It's just hilarious. But, yeah, I mean, look, it's not a bad result for Spurs. Not bad. I mean, if, um, just to jump in there, they've won once in the last 35 visits to Stamford Bridge, and that was in really? April 2018. So, I mean, I suppose it would have been a real statement if they'd gone and got a result. But it's not. It's if there's any if there's any stadium where Spurs would be happy just to take a point, then you would think it's Stamford Bridge. To be fair, absolutely. Yeah. But but you think of this. You know, everyone's sort of talking about the hard run that Spurs have have just embarked on. You know, they beat City two 0 They've drawn nil nil at Chelsea. Who have been who've been in very good form recently. They've got Arsenal next week, which I'm sure they're very much looking forward to. You know, they've got Liverpool as well. And, you know, Liverpool are looking, you know, slightly inconsistent here and there. So look, they've got a really tough run, but the fact that they've drawn nil nil and, you know, they I think on balance you take four points from from a game away at Chelsea and then home to City. No no question Absolutely, about it. Yeah. I mean it's one of the more one of the more 
strange statistics to come out of last season was the sheer lack of clean sheets that Spurs had. Obviously, it was one of the reasons that they weren't getting the results under Mauricio Pochettino. It was one of those quirks after after Mourinho came in. It took it was seven or eight games before he got his first clean sheet, and even after then, they carried on conceding at least once every game. Mm. They're on the they're at the point now. They've got three clean sheets in a row away from home. Like I said, they've won all four of the previous away games before yesterday when obviously they came away with a nil-nil draw. But every single stat you find just makes it sound more and more like a Mourinho team now. Yeah, I mean, they're looking like it. And I was, uh, I was under no illusion, you know, yesterday when a few, a couple of people I was watching the game with said, oh, you know, Spurs are sort of being dominated by Chelsea. And I was like, this is exactly how Spurs are intending to set up and play on the counter. And I do think, you know, as, as much as that can that can be used as a limitation and a, and a stick to beat Mourinho with, it's effective and they've shown that they can do it. And in certain games, you need to adapt your game plan. So uh, I'm not surprised that Spurs went and set up like that. And maybe on balance, Chelsea were the more threatening team. But at the same time, Spurs, it looked a pretty comfortable sort of um, game for, for Spurs in the end. And they did have their chances and opportunities. So... Yeah, I think Mourinho will sort of be quite happy with that. And the fact that, you know, Spurs will probably feel, both teams will probably feel like they could have got the win at the end of the day. But it's probably, you know, fair reflection on the result. A nil-nil, quite cautious game as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't. it's not all about Mourinho sitting up Spurs, tactical masterclass, that kind of thing. I mean, it's, in fairness to Lampard and Chelsea, I mean, it was one of those games where whoever won would have gone top. Like, Chelsea, mm. Chelsea could quite easily have been top in the league right now. Uh, Spurs and Chelsea... Obviously, they've both got the longest current unbeaten runs now. Spurs have got nine, nine games unbeaten, but Chelsea have got eight. And we talked that just then about kind of Frank Lampard's inconsistency last year and eventually he was able to grind it out with some good cup, cup runs mm. uh, in qualifying for the Champions League. And it's... Well, yeah, that's my, that's, my, that's my point, basically. Like, we can sit here and talk about Mourinho being tactical genius and getting Spurs top of the league, but... You know, credit where it's due to, to Lampard to get Chelsea up to third, particularly with Leicester losing against Fulham at the moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. The top of the league. Yeah, definitely. And and look, Chelsea, the the emphasis really this summer was on, you know, they signed Werner, Ziyech and Havertz. And everyone was saying, you know, they're going to be an unbelievable attacking force. And that hasn't come, hasn't quite come to fruition yet. Although I feel like they have, I think, Someone was saying yesterday they've scored the most goals in the league or something like that already, which is, and they're, and they you know, they're, they're clean sheets. You know, Mendy and Chilwell, Thiago Silva's looking like a proper, you know, he's still got it as well. Reese James is flourishing, Zuma next to Thiago Silva. So, you know, they're, the balance on their pitch, Kante back into his defensive midfield position, they're looking very strong. And it looks like, look, you know, Lampard, as well as the job as he's doing, and he did a great job last year. He was back seriously in the transfer market. So it's sort of, it's, it's not surprising in a way that Chelsea are, are playing quite well because they've got excellent players who are playing in their positions. It's quite easy to sort of, yeah, give, you know, hand the keys to these players and, and Lampard can manage the, the sort of squad more, but he leaves it to the individuals because they've got that talent there. Um, so yeah, Chelsea, are, 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 things are looking very promising for them. Yeah, I mean, I did say... Just before we talk about that, that was that was perhaps the last last meaningful meaningful game to discuss. I will renege on that slightly by uh, giving reference to Brighton drawing against Liverpool one all, but that's not really the thing I want to talk about. Liverpool dropping points. I mean, we know how fantastic Liverpool are, but teams can't win every week. You might have got a draw against Brighton, but you know, is what it is. Uh, I think the the main talking point 
from this game that I just want to bring up with you is we heard Klopp talking about um, <laughs> injuries and scheduling and it was Des Kelly on BT asked him about Milner's injury and he sarcastically congratulated him because of the fixture scheduling. But I just want to bring this up because I've been thinking about this. He said that Liverpool had the least possible preparation time between the game on Wednesday and that game on Saturday. But it means they have the most possible preparation time between the game on Saturday and the game on Tuesday. Because the fact they had the earliest kickoff time this weekend, actually, it might have compromised them slightly today, but it's really to the benefit of the game on Tuesday. And you can't really cut it both ways. If Liverpool were kicking off at, you know, quarter past eight tonight, uh, sorry, on Sunday night, last night, then he'd have had plenty to say about that as well, wouldn't he? It's just mm. one, of the, one of those things about being in the Champions League. You've got to play all your games at some point. A hundred percent. And I do think it's, you know, you've got to view it in context of he's got so many players out injured at the moment. Obviously, he's had people with COVID as well. And there's been a couple of shaky results here and there. And I think he's not used to that. And so, of course, you know, every manager at the moment is is struggling with the demands of the of the schedule of the set oh, Christ <laughs> the schedule um, uh, the schedule and you know the the fact that he's he's one of the more vociferous supporters for for getting five subs in and that's come to nothing at the moment. Not that he'd have any players to bring on because they're all injured or got COVID. But yeah, you know you can look. He he he's obviously turned, like frustrated and the whole VAR thing. So I'm not surprised. You know that sort of comes after a frustrating game and a frustrating week. Look, he's lost 2-0 to Atalanta. Then he's gone to Brighton. Very unlucky not to get the goal for Salah as well. So I'm not surprised, but I agree with you. You know, sort of, (laughs) it's it's the same for everyone, really. Everyone's got a congested fixture schedule and to sort of take it out in that way in a sarcastic and aggressive way. I think, you know, Des Kelly did, did very well, sort of, standing his ground and I think you know Klopp is like that he'll he'll get fiery after a game but yeah it's it, it was it was interesting to observe sort of how that played out because it was literally just like an argument <laughs> yeah I mean it's I mean it's, it's it's like I say I mean you you might have an early kickoff this weekend but it gives him more time for next week in the Champions League that sort of thing so it's you know it does as I said it does it does cut both ways and I'm, I'm not sure what the case is for uh, other clubs, but I certainly know in the case of United, I think Man United have got at least two games a week until the new year, such mm. as you know being in all the domestic cup competitions and being in the Champions League. And I'm sure it's very probably the same for Arsenal as well, playing in the Europa League and obviously the other five teams. Um, yeah, it, exactly. you know, you've got to. It's, it's, it is a, at the end of the day, it's a bit of a leveler, isn't it? You know, you, you pay the price for your for your own success. You qualify for competitions that give you. You know, you've got to play more games, and it's just yeah, one of those things. Unfortunately, I um, think the, just to jump in just before we move on, I think the whole you know, I, I completely agree with that, and and that's that's just the reality that all managers have to deal with. But the fact that you know, Premier League are the only division I think across Europe and even in England now that have not introduced the five subs rule, it it just doesn't seem as if there, there's enough. And I know that shouldn't have been directed towards BT or the broadcasters. That's the Premier League's responsibility. But it does seem that given how crazy this year has been, especially for football and the demands and the you know international games and, and fixture congestion and no pre-season, there's got to be more offered, I think, from the Premier League and the organising bodies to help the managers, the players, the teams, so that they can do their job to the best of their ability, which is what they're doing at the moment. But you're, we're seeing players drop like flies at the moment. Um, 
you know, the risks that they're putting themselves through muscular injuries, but also COVID, you know, traveling with their countries and stuff like that. I think, you know, they're, they're, I can understand managers' frustrations as well as appreciating that that's just how it is. All right, we're going to mix it up slightly now. Uh, we love talking about our football on these shows uh, every week, but there are other sporting headlines out there that we'd just like to give a bit of a, a reference to this week, particularly as this, this week did seem to be such a, a hectic week in the world of sport. So we've both picked out one sporting story from this week that we're just going to have a quick talk about. So Alfie, I believe you, you're you just going to say a little bit about uh, Mike Tyson's fight over the weekend. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, it was... Um... It was something that sort of, you know, I'd seen it advertised on BT Sport and I sort of thought to myself, I think I was a bit confused in my mind. I thought Mike Tyson was a lot older than, than, than he actually is. You know, he's only 54. But I think that must be, that's my, must be attributed to the fact that he hasn't, he hasn't um, you know, he hasn't been in the ring for about 15 years. So, you know, I saw that he was, he was, he was uh, taking part in this fight, you know, sort of like an exhibition um, swan song fight. I mean, I, made, I, I said to one of my friends who's a bit of a boxing, sort of he follows the boxing in general and has a bit of knowledge about this stuff. And I, I follow it, but loosely. And I sort of said, it's interesting that Mike Tyson's sort of fighting now. And you said, yeah, he probably needs the money, doesn't he? And it did, you know, there was a bit of that around it, like sort of pay-per-view and, and what is this fight really about? And I think the main attraction probably for viewers or just the general boxing world was to see Mike Tyson and whether he's still got it. Obviously he's 54. Um, and yeah, I mean, from, from what I've read and I didn't watch the fight, but it, it seemed as if it was quite an entertaining uh, fight. And, you know, I, I don't really know sort of what the, what the angle is for, for Mike Tyson moving forwards. You know, he's, he's obviously passed it, but you know, will, will, will crowds continue to be drawn to, towards, you know, Mike Tyson fighting just to see whether he's still got it. I mean, maybe I'm being slightly too cynical and, you know, this could be a resurgence and stuff like that. But, you know, again, the things that I've heard about Mike Tyson as well, he doesn't seem like a very nice man. So, <laughs> you know, um, not really going to get drawn into sort of getting excited about him as a, as a fighter again. But, you know, I suppose, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a spectacle, um, something to talk about as well. So, yeah, that was my sporting that was my non-football sporting story of the week. But well, as, as, you, as I think you're going to move on to, I think there's more important things to talk about than Mike Tyson uh, returning to the ring for a bit of, for a couple of quid in his pocket. I was going to say, if you think you're being cynical, I thought it was, you could just tell before the fight started, it was going to end in a draw, couldn't you? Set it up for a yeah. rematch. I mean, it was, I, I didn't watch it because I'm not into all the all like YouTubers and that, but I saw a few years ago, there was a, was a KSI and Logan Paul on the first fight ended in the draw, just, you know, so predictably, so they could do it all again. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And also, it's not, not quite as cynical, but they did also say there weren't going to be uh, any knockouts and they said they, said they weren't going to knock each other out, which is maybe, you know, Mike Tyson trying to save face of it just in case he wasn't yeah, feeling yeah. quite up to it on the day and he wants to embarrass himself. Um, so, you know, those two things did, 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 make my, did make me more, roll my eyes slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly quite a cool thing to see because I've heard so much about him and obviously seeing him, he's got such a recognisable face with that tattoos on his face and that, but I'd never actually seen him in action. So it was, yeah. it was from a you know from a sporting perspective and something a bit different. It was it was quite cool to see. Absolutely. I mean, as you say as well, there were. I'll, I'm going to move on to a bit of quite a change of tone, really. Um, yeah. Uh, non-foot, not another non-football sporting story. I'm sure everyone will probably have seen it on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, that sort of thing. 
Um, and that's Bahrain Grand Prix on, on Sunday evening. I'm sure everyone will have seen by now the fiery inferno that was Roman Grosjean's car after his 137-mile-an-hour collision into the barrier, which in itself isn't particularly unusual to be crashing at, at such a high speed. Uh, where it starts getting you know, quite scary is the fact that on impact, he pulled 53G, so his body went through 50 t- 53 times the force of gravity uh, on force of impact. It went straight through a metal barrier and split it in two, a uh, steel barrier, which is something that hasn't happened to a car since the 1970s, where a car's gone literally through a barrier. And on all previous occasions that's happened, uh, the driver's died. Um, went up in flames, which hasn't happened to a car since the 1990s. Um, so it was really kind of, it was, a, it was a real kick in the teeth and a really, it shocked everyone's mm-hmm. attention, kind of the dangers that still exist in Formula One and in motorsport in general. Uh, it's the worst crash since uh, 2014 uh, when Jules Bianchi suffered you know, fatal head injuries when he, he, he collided with a recovery vehicle, absolutely hor- horrifyingly. Uh, but it's, it, in some ways, in, it's, it's kind of after everything I've just said, there are, it's a time also for being quite positive, I think, and celebrating kind of the progress that's been made um, in terms of driver safety. I mean, most of all, a few years ago, there was, uh, I'm not sure how aware you'll be of this, but there was a massive Ferrari about, they wanted to introduce this halo, which is kind of like a flip-flop. It's kind of like a pair of tongs that sits on top of the car. And it's kind of an extra layer of protection from debris and things that come flying. And if it wasn't for that yesterday, kind of pushing this steel girder out of the way, um, you know, they would would have lost a life yesterday. And I thought thought I'd watch somebody live get killed, which was... Absolutely horrific, but you know, thankfully, due to the due to the, the safety levels now, he was he was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I, I watched the footage back, and I don't follow Formula One, but you know, I'm aware of, of of terrible accidents happening in the past. But you know, with someone who who doesn't really have a knowledge of the, and I'm sure you know, as as you said, there, there's plenty of protective measures in place, and you know, it's such a high risk sport given the pace that they're going at, and you know, the the risk of, of something like that happening and crashes and all the rest of it but to see a man you know for probably about what best part of 30 seconds sort of sitting in a vehicle on fire um yeah. was was you know shocking i and i you know not what i'm not a, i don't think you need to be a formula one sort of regular to to notice that that was really quite something and, and you see him sort of stumble out of the car and it was just you know and to be fair it looked like they as soon as something like that happened, how can you prepare for that? But it looked like they, they dealt with it in the, way, the best way that they could. And, and thank God that the guy was all right. But you think like this guy was literally sitting in there and, and thank God for the, the highly developed protective measures because he was literally on fire. Yeah, I mean, it was 27 seconds he was, he was in that fireball and he got away with second degree burns to his hands, which is just absolutely remarkable, really. Um, I mean, when they were first trying to introduce this thing back in 2017, there's this halo. And the main concern, actually, was not to do with the safety of it. It was to do with how it looks and how, how ugly it was. And for me, personally, as someone who watches it every week, you know, I, I stopped noticing after a few weeks, to be quite honest. Um, but one of the things he said when they were trying to sell it to you know, fans, drivers, teams, people who were kind of sceptical was it. On average, it's in kind of accidents involving debris flying and that it improves chances of survival for the person in the car by 17 percent um i think yesterday it was most certainly 100 percent. otherwise his head would have had a 137 mile an hour collision with a barrier so i think it is a time just you know just just to reflect and be grateful that you know such safety measures absolutely are in place um so that's kind of my serious serious note for the week yeah.
um, and we'll return to talk about Champions League. I think there's there's uh, one obvious game in the Champions League this week that stands out, and it might just be me and my biased opinion, but I think generally, by and large, the big game that is going to be getting most people's attention is PSG's trip to Old Trafford. We've already mm-hmm. seen this season United repeat their incredible performance in the knockout stages a couple of seasons ago, uh, where they won in Paris, but we can't forget also that they did get absolutely trampled in the home fixture in the first leg which is absolutely not what United need right now, needing one point to qualify the last 16. Um, one point, obviously, enough to join, join City and Chelsea. What, how do you rate their chances of getting that? Look, I, on the basis of, of Saturday, um, sorry, Sunday, rather, and I know you were, you were unfortunate in the first half and you should have taken your chances, and, but you, know, you, you, you played quite well. For, for the over the 90 minutes and Cavani coming on I mean I don't know I, th- I presume Martial was was injured because he wasn't in the squad he was, he was ill on uh, well, Sunday morning yeah. so I mean I presumably that means Cavani will start against PSG I mean that's quite the spectacle um, I think you I mean I don't know how playing at Old Trafford affects it I mean I know you, you played pretty well against Leipzig at Old Trafford but um I rate your chances quite highly. I think PSG, you know, they drew 2-2 at the weekend to a, a lowly Liga team. They haven't been very consistent. You know, obviously there's always the threat of Neymar and Mbappe, Di Maria, but the rest of the team is sort of, you know, it's very top-heavy, that team, and it always will be with the likes of Mbappe and Neymar. But I think consistency-wise, they've not really been at it. So I think, to be fair, I'm, I'm sure they have a point to prove after you going to to, to the Parc de Prince and and beating them. Was it two nil, two one? Two one, wasn't it? Two one. Marshall so, and Yeah. So look, I think it's, it's 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 finely balanced. I think either team could win, but I I feel more confident than I perhaps would ordinarily, having watched United on Sunday and having seen what you've done in the Champions League so far. Um, yeah. I mean, we have spoken before about Man United's contrasting form in, in the Champions League and the Premier League. I mean, obviously, then they went and lost to Istanbul, which kind of, you know, is it would back down to work with, work with a bang. But by and large, they are, they've been far better in, in Europe than in the Premier League this season. And it's kind of been reflected in the team selection, as in, you know, we've seen Van der Beek starting a lot more in the Champions League. Uh, for example, Tellez's first appearance was that brilliant display in, in, in Paris. And I think the game against Southampton, particularly once once Cavani came on, it, it did resemble much more kind of the teams who've been playing in the Champions League um, and mm. the players we've been using. And obviously that was that, that that was reflected with three goals in them second forty five minutes. So I think as long as as long as Solskjaer starts to move towards kind of using the squad he's tended to use in the Champions League, then I think there's plenty of reason to look up in, in both the Champions League and the Premier League team. Yeah, and I think, look, you know, I know Greenwood, Greenwood was taken off, I think. Was it half? Yeah, it was half-time for Cavani. Yeah. Um, and I know Pogba's not involved at the moment, Martial injured, but the way I see it, and I think, well, you've got, you should be playing perhaps Fred uh, Matic, perhaps, against PSG and Van der Beek, and then Bruno Fernandes, Cavani and Rashford. And, you know, Bruno Fernandes is everywhere anyway. It doesn't matter where you start him. He's always going to be involved. And I think that debate can get forward. Fred and Matic sort of more secure. So, you know, I think you, it's sort of, in my head at least, you know, a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 with the players you've got at the moment fit 
you know, the sort of the, the, the positional difficulties of Pogba and perhaps even Martial playing as a centre forward when he hasn't quite been at it this year sort of, you know, makes it easier or clearer, at least in my mind, to see what your strongest team should be at the moment. And, you know, with Tellers and Wan-Bissaka at right back, left back, Lindelof and Maguire, I see quite a solid 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 sort of taking place, which, you know, is front-footed and can give anyone problems because, you know, Rashford, Fernandez, Cavani, it looks alike as well. Very, very dangerous players. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it seems to get more interesting by the week. This this whole situation with Paul Pogba. I mean, we talk about kind of the teams we've tended to use in the Champions League and the players we've tended to use in, in the Premier League. Paul Pogba has been far more prominent in the Premier League than he has been in the Champions League this season. Mm. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we have been so much better in the Champions League. Obviously, I know we had a pretty shambolic first half in terms of the scoreline against Southampton on Sunday. But in terms of the overall performance, when you look at the full 90 minutes, it was, certainly attacking-wise, it, it was very accomplished. And people say, oh, you know, you, you can't fall into Mourinho trap of falling out with Pogba. I think, I don't think he has fallen out with Pogba necessarily. I think he's just realised that he's just not, he doesn't help this team, really. Absolutely. And I do think, you know, Pogba, of course, and I think this argument is is becoming less and less relevant for, for a whole host of players. You know, Pogba is obviously an excellent individual and in the right team, you know, when you, when you see him in France and playing for the national team, he looks a different player, you know, have flashes for United. But if you can't do it consistently and he's not that, you can't really afford to have that luxury player anymore. You know, I was thinking about Bruno Fernandes the other day and how, obviously, how brilliant he is in terms of his attacking output. But he's really sort of bucked the trend in the sense that on paper, or if you didn't really know too much about him, he seems like this sort of European number 10 who could perhaps disappear in games. And, you know, he's very technical, but he is, you know, physically so on it. He's relentless. He's, he's disciplined. Um, and players like Pogba, I think of, you know, Arsenal, we've got Meza Ozil. You think the likes of Christian Eriksen at the moment, Felipe Coutinho. All these players are sort of, being left behind with the with the intensity of the game now, and you can't afford to have players who are sort of, you know, a bit inconsistent or not not capable of doing the defensive running or the you know making those intense high intensity sprints both up and down the pitch. So I think yeah, Pogba, he's not really been present at all this year, and I think you're probably a better team for it, which speaks volumes of 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 well, yeah, you've got a problem because you can't have well, I guess of, of all clubs to be able to hold on to Pogba given the value, I don't think United are sort of, you know, in the most uh, precarious position. But I think he is coming to a point now where, where Pogba sort of really, you sort of want to get as much money back from him as possible. No, I would agree with that totally. And I think all the players you mentioned just there, kind of Pogba, Ozil, maybe not Ericsson so much at Inter, but certainly when he arrived at Spurs, all arrived, they were the focal point of that team once upon a time. And, you know, Pogba's had his opportunities and he, he's not taken those opportunities, whereas I like so well, most obviously... Bruno Fernandes, and then you see the likes of Van der Beek when he's played, has been absolutely top of his game. The likes of even the likes of Greenwood and Marshall have burst onto the scene in a way that you know, Pogba just frankly didn't. And mm. I think he's just, he just flat out simply is not the star of that team that he signed up to be. That's what he signed up for when he joined Man United. And realizations hit that he's just he just isn't, quite frankly. Yeah. And and to be fair, you know, you can obviously blame him for 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 discipline and and the type of player that we all sort of hope that he would be. But you know, he was signed by Man United, sort of 
expecting him to be the, the main guy. And you think, well, he plays brilliantly at an international level, but France is a team full of superstars. I sort of thought, to be fair, to be fair, if he could fit into the team with Bruno Fernandes and not, not you know, being the talisman, I think just hasn't worked at United for Pogba. But maybe you, you know, you can't, you don't have that sort of flexibility having Pogba in there as well as the other attacking options. I just think, yeah, he doesn't do enough to merit his inclusion these days. And I know he's been injured recently, so that's why he hasn't been involved. But he seems to always be injured or not playing. I mean, the parallels between him and Ozil are, you know, they are sad to yeah. observe. And it's slightly different because obviously Pogba's a bit younger and, you know, more valuable and can still, you know, he still has holds value as a player. But, you know, they're just, Pogba is, is need, should, should be on paper contributing a lot more given his price tag. And also, you know, the, the calibre of player that he is. But I mean, we have spoken about football. We have spoken about United, obviously, at, at the top of the show. But we're on. We, I think we're talking about Pogba more specifically now, so that we can we can allow ourselves just to revisit it slightly. But I think when United mm. signed Van der Beek, and there was all this talk about, well, they've now got Fernandez, Van der Beek, Pogba in midfield. Is somebody going to miss out? I don't think anybody would have ever expected that Pogba was going to be the one, or necessarily Bruno Fernandez. Uh, but yeah. Van der Beek has really forced himself into that team performance this last few weeks. So he's. Pogba's not one of our... He, he, I don't think he's regarded as one of the top two attacking options. Mm. I don't think he's clearly one of the, the better defensive options. We've got the likes of Fred, to be fair, who's really come into his own this season, which, as we said before. Mm. Tomine's obviously up and coming. Matic still puts a shift in. So he may well be a, a superstar as some kind of flamboyant, you know, really expensive midfielder with fancy multicolored hair. But... He's not, he's not, he might be the best all round, but he's not one of the top two attacking midfielders and he's not one of the top defensive midfielders either. So he might have this flair and this price tag and his reputation, but he's just, he's not he's a founder rather than a specialist, I think. Yeah. And I, I to be fair, it's, it's not just him, but like, but like I said, like, it's not enough to simply, you, you don't get the merit based solely on on individual talent these days it's got to be sort of channeled into the collective and you look at the likes of you know testament of a true great midfielder the likes of De Bruyne David Silva who were able to both show their individual talent but then have a coach be it have it coached into them to be part of the collective and you know sort of sort of you know talent and collectivity into one it makes the, the you know the midfield players especially so brilliant and it looks like Pogba hasn't been able to you know have have that combination or he's you know he's, no one doubts his individual capability but yeah it's, it, it's a shame to be fair it's a shame all right we'll just move on just to finish there's well we're talking about the Champions League and then we'll wrap it up for this week there is one more English team in the Champions League yet to qualify which is of course Liverpool I mean, we've, we spoke before about, about the kind of the, 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 the Ferrari surrounding fixtures and congested schedules and that. Uh, Liverpool are top of this group. They've got nine points. Ajax and Atalanta, they were hot on their heels on seven. Michelin's, um, I think, unfortunately now for them, their days are numbered in the Champions League on, on zero points. <laughs> um, but, you know, we saw Liverpool, we, 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 it paid dividends a few weeks ago when we were talking about Atalanta as some kind of threat for Liverpool and then they got beaten mm. 5-0. But we, we were proved right eventually on mm. this week just gone. And Ajax, yeah. as we know, are absolutely no pushovers either. And we've seen the right. injuries that Liverpool have sustained. Well, yeah, and look, the news is just brought, I don't know if you've seen it, Thiago's out until New Year, so he's missing the next month of football, he's missing the whole Christmas period. Think of the likes of Alexander Arnold, Van Dijk, obviously. And so, look, 
like Liverpool have the excuse and it's very a very valid excuse of, of having so many important players out having said that they are still a good team and they were very unlucky not to come away with a with a pretty secure win against Brighton on Saturday Atalanta was a bit of a weird one they went with a weakened team because I, th- I think they had to and they sort of expected the the Anfield and you know, if if fans were in a, at Anfield on on Wednesday, I think it's a different proposition because I think you know, as as they always say, it's the twelfth man and all of that sort of stuff. But look, I think Liverpool are they've got plenty of stuff to be dealing with to that at, to their detriment, and I think they'll come through it. But like you say, Ajax are, are a tough team, so it doesn't get any easier for Liverpool. To be fair, I mean they just got to jump the hurdle, haven't they? You need to get in the top two. I mean, it's nice to finish top the league, top of the group, but that's no guarantee of an easier tie necessarily in the second round. When you look mm. at the likes of Barcelona and Juventus both being in the same group, for example, or dare I say, yeah. United, PSG and Leipzig. So they just got yeah. to just got to clear the barrier and then obviously New Year's, yeah. a lot of the players will be back. And, the, and they will because they always do. But yeah, I think it, it was a bit of a surprise to see them lose 2-0 to Atalanta last week. That, that's, that was the only thing. Anyway, thanks very much, Alfie. We'll leave it there. We filled the no hour quite nicely there. Uh, we did have a lot to talk about, which is, which is always nice. Always uh, good. So thanks for joining me once again. We've not got many left before Christmas. We might have one next week. So I hope hope we'll uh, hope we'll all be together for another show again next week. Um, so thanks for joining me this week. Thanks everyone for listening. See you later. Bye bye. <laughs>